0: Thank you, Pastor Danny, for leading us, as you always do, to the throne of love and grace. And thank you, Pastor Stephen. In a moment, you can open up God's Word for us, as you always do, and share what God has laying on your heart. Now, usually when you preach, uh, nobody introduces you. Because we just assume that everybody knows who you are. We introduce everybody else, but Pastor Stephen. But in a few minutes, this is a little bit different. In a few minutes, we're going to be voting on a recommendation of the pastor search team to call. That is to ask you to become our senior pastor. And when you preach in view of a call, you have to be introduced. So if that bothers you, just get over it. It just... (laughs) Uh, That's just one of the things that you do at this church or any other church. Many of us know Pastor Stephen well, and certainly the Pastor Search team knows him a lot better than we did uh, a year ago. Uh, He has served as our Associate Pastor for Education and Discipleship since April of 2014, a little over three years. In fact, he's been a part of our church family since he and his family Joined the congregation shortly after he was born again and baptized at the age of six. He surrendered to God's call to the gospel ministry after graduating from high school, and we had the good sense to license him to the gospel ministry in March of two thousand four. After graduating from the University of New Mexico, uh, summa cum laude and. Some of you don't know what that means. You know, a lot of us, when we graduated college, we we graduated thank you, Lottie. Uh, but anyway, Stephen got this summa cum laude thing uh, with a B.A. in English in 2005. After that, he went to Mill Valley, California, where he was awarded a Master of Divinity degree, a three-year degree uh, from... On top of college, uh, where he was awarded a Master of Divinity degree by Golden Gate Baptist Theological Seminary in 2009, after directing uh, Baptist Collegiate Ministries for the Hawaii Pacific Baptist Convention at the University of Hawaii in Hilo for a year, he returned to Golden Gate for another couple years to do another degree. Uh, a Master of Theology degree in 2013. And while pursuing that degree, he served on the uh, adjunct faculty of uh, the seminary's contextualized leadership development program at San Quentin State Prison. Uh, Golden Gate was also where you met Nikki. Beautiful Nikki. Thank God. Um, Nikki uh, received her Master of Divinity degree from Golden Gate as well in 2010, and God has blessed them with uh, three just adorable little girls, uh, Abigail 7, Ellie 4, and Olivia 3. Pastor Stephen, we already love you and appreciate you, and we thank God for you and your ministry, and Right now, we want you to know that uh, we're going to try real hard not to think too far in advance. We're going to try to listen to what God has told you to share with us. So let's pray together before Stephen comes. God, you know so many of us just can't help but to be thinking ahead a few minutes to what's going to take place at the end of this service. But I really do pray that you'll help us all just to to pull our minds back to this moment. Because now is when you have a message for us. And I, I just pray that you'll not just help us to hear it, but it'll go way down into our heart and we'll really, we'll really hear it. Most of all, just you know help us to listen with the totality of our being. And most important, give us the courage to say yes to the one who said yes to the cross for us. Have your own way in each of our lives. Fill Stephen with your Holy Spirit. Help him to share your word. As clearly as I know he wants to, we'll be careful to give you the praise for what you accomplished during this time. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Uh,
1: I would ask you to take your copy of God's Word this morning. If you don't have one with you, there should be one uh, under the seat just in front of you or one nearby. Uh, Open your Bibles to uh, Paul's letter to the Corinthian church 1 Corinthians in chapter 15 1 Corinthians 15 I want to thank John as the chairman of the pastor search team and the other members of the search team for their for their their steadfast work over the last several months I know it's been challenging for them I want to thank you church family for your patience and prayerfulness over the last several months as well and also for your faithfulness to, to our church body. Uh, times of transition are, uh, are rarely easy, uh, and, and nor are they things that we desire to go through. But, uh, but you all have endured well uh, and with patience. And so I thank you, and I know that the search team is grateful for that as well. Uh, before we open God's word together in 1 Corinthians this morning, I, I would be remiss if I, if I did not address the elephant in the room. That elephant is comprised of the many unique and even awkward, uh, at times, details involved in the pastor search team's recommendation of me to serve as senior pastor here. Not the least of those details is the fact that I grew up in this church. Our family came to be members here when I was about seven years old and spent the majority of my life here, of my 30 some odd years of life, about 20 of them have been spent as a member and or Uh, uh, pastoral staff member of this church. In a nearly 30-year history of First Baptist West Albuquerque, formerly Taylor Ranch Baptist Church, this body has never once called one of their own, one raised in this body to serve as senior pastor. That's unique. It's unique. Having grown up in this church and having served on staff for the last three and almost three and a half years, I have a very detailed and nuanced understanding of who we are as a church, of where we have been, of what we've been through. And certainly God has given me many thoughts about where he might would lead us as a church body in the future. There is, unlike any other pastor that has served here in this place, a prior history between us. We know each other. I would pray that our familiarity with one another the fact that we are like family, knowing one another's strengths and weaknesses, I would pray that our familiarity with one another would be the the seedbed for much growth in the fruit of the Spirit. Prayerfully, the fruit of a union between this body and me as senior pastor would result in mutual love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control all to the glory of God should the Lord confirm through you, church family of First Baptist West Albuquerque, should the Lord confirm the recommendation of the pastor search team through your vote today, my sincere hope and prayer is that we would all look and live and love more like Jesus Christ as a result of the years that we spend together in ministry. Amen. Having said that, let's turn our attention to God's word in First Corinthians chapter 15. Those of you who are not familiar with Paul, the Apostle Paul and his ministry, allow me to give you some background and, and about the, the uh, history of the church at Corinth. Uh, know this, that during, it was during Paul's second missionary journey that he would ultimately spend several months in the city of Corinth, this ancient Roman city of Corinth, preaching the gospel, making disciples, organizing new believers into a local church there in that place. Corinth was the capital city of the region of Achaia at the time, and it was a thriving marketplace for lots of things, not the least of which was popular philosophy. In Corinth, itinerant speakers would make a living and a good one at that speaking in this forum in the center of the city. They would talk about various aspects of philosophy, things to do with your life. They would give uh, uh, philosophical wisdom to the people. And and for their speaking, they would be paid. Paul, the apostle, defied this trend in Corinth by preaching the gospel of Jesus free of charge. Never once taking money for his preaching so as to show that the gospel of Jesus is not a thing to be used for worldly gain. Paul didn't expect to profit financially from his preaching of the gospel. Now, the church that came about as a result of Paul's ministry and other apostles' ministry in Corinth, in his absence, became what we would affectionately call a hot mess. Once Paul left Corinth, the people in Corinth got a little crazy. Paul's letter to the Corinthians, the first one that we have here... The one we're looking at this morning was written by Paul while he was spending time uh, during his third missionary journey in another city called Ephesus. He's responding in 1 Corinthians to a letter from the Corinthian church to Paul asking him questions and detailing some of the problems that they were experiencing. Now, we don't have the letter that the Corinthian church wrote to Paul, but we are just uh, presuming that there is a, uh, a letter that was written because Paul references a letter that they wrote to him and questions that they have been asking. You may find in the pages of 1 Corinthians allusions, references to problems that face a particular church at a particular time, but you would be hard-pressed to find a Jesus-loving, gospel-centered church that is quite the dumpster fire that was the church at Corinth. And it's easy to see... When you see a church with the conflict, with the problems, with the issues that the church in Corinth faced... It's, it's easy to look at that church uh, with, with condemnation or judgment, perhaps, in our perception of them. Boy, how could they mess up all that stuff? Man, what a disaster. Rather, I think when we read the letter of 1 Corinthians... We should, we should not be judgmental of the Corinthians, but we should, uh, in thanks and praise to God be grateful that he allowed just one church to go through all of this so that through his apostle Paul, he might give instruction for the church following uh, that will deal with some of these issues in the course uh, of their life as a church. Our passage today comes from the context of 1 Corinthians as background for what the Holy Spirit through Paul ultimately would teach the church about the resurrection of the dead. If you continue to read 1 Corinthians 15, you'll see Paul talking about the importance that Christ was raised from the dead and what that means for the church. But 1 Corinthians 15 verses 1 through 11 also has this wonderful characteristic of standing alone as a reminder to the church through all ages of the one thing that is of first importance in any context, in any time, in any cultural milieu. You might be wondering this morning, if I'm called to serve you as senior pastor, what will I major on? What will I seek to accomplish in my first few years of ministry here in this place? What sort of agenda or direction will I take the church? These questions may be all on your mind. And so I call our attention here to 1 Corinthians 15 to say on the instruction of God's word that as senior pastor, I will, I will endeavor to lead this church to know, proclaim, and live in the gospel of Jesus Christ as a matter of first importance. Amen. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 11 together this morning. Paul, in the inspiration of God's Holy Spirit, writes this. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received: that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, that is, Peter. And then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, that is the brother of Jesus, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I'm the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. So whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. There are in these verses three crucial, critical things to understand about the all-important gospel. Three things that have begun and will continue to shape my ministry and, God willing, the ministry of any church that he would lead me to pastor. The first is this, in verses 1 and 2, the gospel is worthy of repeating. The gospel is worthy of repeating. Paul says in verse 1, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. Literally translated from the original language, Paul is saying here, I would make known to you the gospel I preached to you. What is clear is that Paul is not here telling the Corinthians anything new. He's not telling them something different other than what he's told them before. The gospel, that is the good news of Jesus Christ, has been preached before to the Corinthians. Indeed, Paul says that they have received it. It's the gospel that he preached that they received. They have taken the message that they heard with their ears and they have buried it into their hearts. But the Apostle Paul here takes opportunity to make clear, to bring to their remembrance, to review afresh the gospel, the good news that he preached before. It is a message worthy of repeating clearly for at least two reasons. First, because it is our salvation Paul says the gospel is that by which the church has been saved and are being saved. Did you catch that? Verse 2, by which you are being saved. is it not interesting that Paul would use the present tense here, being saved? Often we treat the gospel, the good news of Jesus, as a thing that saves us once and for all time, which certainly it does when we trust Jesus as Savior and repent of our sins. But we often neglect the ongoing saving nature of the gospel in our lives day to day. It's not as though we're saved by faith in Jesus' sinless life, death in our place, his resurrection just once, but rather that the gospel of Jesus Christ is saving us still. How wonderful then to see that God's salvation for us through the gospel is not limited to one experience. Not limited to one moment in time. But that it continues in saving power each day. Each day the gospel is saving us from our sin as it convicts us of our rebellion against God as it leads us to renewed repentance and faithful following of Jesus. The gospel is an active calibration tool for our souls. Every day correcting our sinful hearts and pointing us to spiritual true north. Christian, the gospel is your salvation yesterday and it is saving you today. It is worth repeating for this reason. But it is also worthy of repeating because it is our spiritual anchor. It's not just our salvation, but it's also our spiritual anchor. In verse 1, Paul says, the gospel is that... ...which the Corinthians received and in which they stand. That is to mean that it is the thing in which the Corinthians continue steadfastly and firmly remain. I just had a really bad picture in my mind of like a, when a mob boss is about to off a rat, you know. They, they put their feet in concrete before they throw them in the river. And, and that's like what it is to, to stand firmly in the gospel. To have your, your feet stuck in the concrete of the gospel... Now, forget the rest of the badness of that image, okay? And just. <laughs> the good news that the Son of God, Jesus Christ, took the penalty for our sin in our place by his death on the cross, and that he rose from the dead to give victory over our rebellion against a good and holy God, and to give victory over death by giving us eternal life through faith in his name. That is spiritual bedrock for us. In the shifting sands of culture, the gospel is a steady place to plant in your life. In the whirlpool of temptation, the gospel is an anchor for the ship of your soul. So stand on it. Weigh anchor into it. Build your life on the solid rock of the gospel of Jesus. Because the gospel is our spiritual anchor and because it is our ongoing salvation, then church gospel remembrance should be, must be a daily task. Because of what the gospel is and does in you, Christian, in an ongoing way, you can never outgrow your need for the gospel. I'm going to say that again. Because of what the gospel has done and because of what it continues to do in your life, you can never, ever outgrow your need for the gospel. Because the infinite God who created the universe is the author of your salvation through the power of the good news of Jesus Christ. You can never, you will never plumb the depths of the gospel or tire of its beauty. The Christian who overlooks or downplays his need for the gospel each day is as foolish as a hiker in the desert of New Mexico who does not pack fresh water for his journey. The gospel is water to our thirsty souls. Friend, I don't care if you have been following Christ for six months or 60 years. You need the gospel as much today as you did the day you first received it. Amen. Church at First Baptist West Albuquerque, you know this. If you call me to lead this church as senior pastor, you can expect to hear the gospel repeated ad nauseum. You can expect to get tired of hearing me talk to you about the gospel. The my, my hope and prayer is that you will not tire of it. <laughs> but like people with refined palates, you will grow in your love and appreciation for the good news of Jesus. Friend, if you're here this morning, I, I see a lot of faces I, I don't know. And I don't know where you're at with God today. And, and if you're here today, you would not identify yourself as a Christian, as a believer, a follower of Jesus. The gospel is for you too. The gospel is for you especially. The gospel is this. That there's a God who has created everything that we see and that we know. And that he's created us and our hearts to to know him. To love him. To worship him. And to bless us in our knowing, loving, and worshiping him. But we have each, and we know this by our own consciences. We've done things that we know are not right. We've done things that we know are, are wrong, morally wrong. The Bible calls that sin. And it's not just an affront. It's not just an insult, an offense, our sin to another person. But it's also an, an insult to the God who created us. God is perfect. He is utterly holy. He, he cannot be in the presence of sin without judging it. For him to do so would make him unjust. It would make him unloving. But because God is loving and because he is just... He does punish sin. And that's a good thing. The Bible tells us each of us is accountable for our own sin. We have to answer to the God who created us for our rebellion against him. But this is the good news. This is why the gospel is what the gospel is. That God in his love and justice satisfied both his love for us and his justice against sin by sending his own son, Jesus, God in the flesh, to die in our place. To pay the penalty for our sin. And Jesus was raised from the dead. So that we too who trust in Jesus. As the savior of our souls. The one who has paid for our sin. That we can have forgiveness of our sins. And be right with God. He who is raised from the dead. Will also raise us from the dead. That we might not spend eternity separated from God. The good news is this. The God that that, that created you. To know, love and worship him. Even in the face of our rebellion. Has made a way. To bring us back that we might know, love, and worship him the way we were created. Friend, if you don't know Jesus this way today, I I implore you. I, I, I plead with you. Hear the gospel. Think on the gospel. Spend the rest of the service in prayer. Asking God. Maybe you don't know how to talk to God. But asking God, God, what would you have me do with this news? If this is true, God, tell me what to do with it. The response, the proper response to the gospel is this, that you turn from your sin. You turn from your rebellion against God, knowing that it's wrong, knowing that it's displeasing to him, knowing that it separated you from him, and trusting your life in the spiritual bedrock. That is the good news of Jesus Christ, his death in your place, the resurrection from the dead. Trusting him, asking God for forgiveness in Jesus' name, and spending your life in faithful devotion and following of Jesus That is the gospel. And friends, that is the gospel that that I, to this day, do not get tired of. Every day I love it more and more. Every day I see an aspect of it that that I didn't see the day before. And, And Christian, you who are hearing the gospel for maybe the millionth time in your life today, I pray that your response to the gospel is the same today. That you would worship God for the beauty of what he's done in giving us Jesus. Expect to hear the gospel from me regularly because, and this gets to the second aspect of the all important gospel here in 1 Corinthians 15. Expect to hear it from me regularly because the gospel is urgent. The gospel is urgent. Paul says in verses 3 through 7, well, in verse 3, he says, It is of first importance. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. He's here telling the Corinthians that he has delivered the gospel to them as the most important thing he could do. He could say, that is to say, when Paul got to Corinth or any other city for that matter, as he traveled around the world, proclaiming the gospel, planting churches, as he met with people who did not know Jesus, there was nothing else on his mind any given moment than to share the gospel with them. The gospel is urgent not only to Paul, but it is urgent to the Apostle Peter and to Stephen and to Philip and to James and John and Priscilla and Aquila and countless others in the early days of the church. Nothing was of greater importance. Nothing was of greater urgency than the good news of Jesus. And it's urgent precisely because, as Paul shows us, it is real history. The gospel is real history. He says that he delivered as of first importance that which he also received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Most of whom are still alive. Though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. Friends, the gospel is not a fun story, a neat little tale to tell. It's real history. Paul is saying, he is telling to us that Jesus really was the Son of God. He really lived a life free of any rebellion or treason or disobedience to God the Father. He really did die on a cross to really satisfy the debt that we owe to God for our sin. He was really buried in a tomb and he really was raised from the dead as evidenced by his appearing to the apostles and even to 500 people at once, many of whom were still alive. So you can go check the facts, Paul says, to ask them if all of this was really true. Catch also though, that none of this was by accident or by coincidence. All of this real history all of the whole of the gospel message is, as Paul says, according to the scriptures. What does that mean? By, Paul, by, by this, Paul means that the gospel has scriptural precedence. That is to say, God has spoken about this before. The entire Old Testament, all of the Old Testament scriptures have spoken about Christ, have pointed to his coming, have prepared, were, were intended to prepare the people of Israel and the rest of the world to trust Jesus when he came. Just as the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 53 spoke of a suffering servant of God who would be pierced and crushed and chastised by God for the sins of mankind. So Paul says Jesus died for our sins. Just as the psalmist says in Psalm 16 that God would not allow his holy one to see corruption. And as Jesus promised to those listening to him in his day, the sign of Jonah, that is his resurrection from the dead. Paul reminds the Corinthian Christians that Jesus was indeed raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Jesus does nothing in his life, death, burial and resurrection. Inconsistent with what God said his Messiah, his promised savior would do. All history is interpreted. We look at events in the world, we try to make sense of them so that we can properly place them in our understanding of the world. We look at major events like 9-11, like World War II, uh, things like the American Revolution, the French Revolution, the Reformation, we, we interpret them to help us make sense of the world that we live in, to see patterns of behavior, things, actions maybe to avoid, behaviors to encourage, and so on. But Paul interprets here the real history of Jesus' death and resurrection against the Scriptures. The Scriptures that prophesied and promised these very things so many years ago, years before them they, they happened. And as he concluded... And he concluded, as did the Corinthian brothers, that the historical facts of the gospel demand a real response. Because it really happened, you really must do something with it. The proper response in this case is, as we said before, to turn from the sin that separates us from God and trust in Jesus, God's Son, as Lord, as Master, as King of our lives. The urgency of the gospel was a non-negotiable for Paul. Preaching the gospel with urgency was not just something Paul and the earliest Christians did. It was part of who they were. There should then be no difference between the earliest Christians and the church today in this regard. So church, know this. Gospel urgency must be the foremost characteristic of the church. Urgency with the good news that God saves sinners through faith in his son must be the thing that defines us. The churches, the gospel is what what has brought us to Christ and through Christ reconciled us to God. We are what we are as Christians because of the gospel. We are not Christians. We are not followers of Jesus without the gospel. And apart from people sharing the gospel with us in a sense of urgency, we would remain unsaved. How many of you Christians today uh, stand here as a result of someone sharing the gospel with you? Okay. That, by the way, that's the only way you can actually come to be a Christian, is to have the gospel shared with you. Okay? So, so praise God for that, that someone in your life thought that your eternal destiny and your relationship with the God who made you to know, love, and worship him was so important that they would stop at nothing to share the gospel with you till you responded to it in faith and repentance. Praise God for those faithful people in your life who shared the gospel with you urgently. Church, there's nothing more important for us to talk about. There's nothing more important for us to preach about. There's nothing more important for us to share lovingly with our families and neighbors than the good news of forgiveness of sins and new life through trusting Jesus Christ. And so know this, that if you call me to serve in the role as senior pastor, you should expect me to regularly ask you again and again, often, who are you telling about Jesus? Christian, who are you telling about Jesus? Who are you talking to about their need to know Christ and the God who made them? Who are you pouring your life into that, that they might see the character of Christ in you and, and want to know the Lord that you know? Expect me to ask you regularly, who are you telling about Jesus? And I hope that you'll ask me regularly, Pastor, who are you telling about Jesus? Listen, the reason that, gospel, that the gospel takes first importance for Paul The reason it takes first importance for the church is precisely because of its miraculous, transformative power. The gospel is transformative, we see in verses 8 through 11. It is the power of God to transform who we are. Paul, in verses 8 and 9, reminds the Corinthians that Jesus also appeared to him after he would appeared to many others. And that as such, Paul counts himself among the apostles, those who are eyewitnesses to the risen Lord. And though he considers himself the least of the apostles because of his persecution against the church uh, uh, of God. Paul, who in the first few chapters of Acts is called by his Hebrew name Saul, was before his conversion a Pharisee of Pharisees in his own right. He was an expert in the Jewish law and, and an expert of experts taught in the best of schools. Taught by the best of teachers. He had trained with all of the the great Pharisee leaders. And like the best of Pharisees, he did what Pharisees do. He imprisoned followers of Jesus and made their lives hell. That is, until he saw the risen Lord on a road to Damascus. And was compelled by the sight of the risen Jesus to believe the gospel he had been persecuting. To repent of his sin and to submit his life to Christ. Paul, in his letter to the Romans, says that he is not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God to salvation. It's powerful enough to transform a prominent Pharisee thirsty for the blood of Christians into the humblest of apostles who finds himself longing for more of Jesus each day. The gospel is the power of God to transform who we are It is mighty to save, it is powerful to transform, and all this because it is the grace of God in believers. It is the grace of God in us. You want to know how it is, why it is that God could change dirty, rotten sinners into people who are sinners saved by grace and striving to follow Jesus faithfully. It's by His grace. It's His good gift to us. No sooner does Paul note his apostolic status than does he point out his hard work for the gospel through the grace of God. He says in verse 10 that it is God's grace that makes him who he is. He says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. Sounds kind of like Popeye. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. But it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. It is God's grace that makes Paul who he is. It is God's grace through Christ in the gospel that brings about change in his life. And God's grace that works with him to get the gospel to the nations the gospel transforms us because the gospel is the grace of god it's his free gift of salvation working in our hearts to change us to renew our souls to mold our minds into the mind of christ the gospel the good news of jesus is the delivery method for the unearned favor of god on an undeserving people And in working his grace in us as we trust and believe the good news, God is glorified and he is pleased to transform our priorities, to take and change our desires away from deadly sin to life in Jesus. By God's good design, this life changing, soul birthing, heart melting gospel, when received and believed and lived, then becomes the singular aim of the church. It becomes the singular aim of the church. Paul closes his paragraph at verse 11. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. The key phrase here, I think, is the first part of that sentence. Whether then it was I or they. That is to say that the one who delivers the message of the gospel is ultimately unimportant. The one who is preaching the gospel is unimportant. What is important is that the gospel is preached and that it is heard and that it is believed. Paul, though he is credited with writing over uh, or nearly a third of the New Testament. Paul, who planted countless churches in the Roman Empire over three separate missionary journeys. Paul, who died as a martyr in Rome for his ministry of the gospel. A man that most pastors would like to be like and whose influence they would like to enjoy. Paul himself says of himself, I don't care whether it was me or the other apostles who preached to you. Or even countless number of others who proclaim it. What matters most is that we preach, that we declare the gospel, and that you believe it. There's no other goal for the apostles than to make disciples. The same was true of Peter, John, James, and the others. There's no other aim, there's no other goal of the church than to grow in the gospel. There's nothing in the world that should vie for our attention and focus and determination as followers of Jesus than the preaching of the good news that brings the spiritually dead to life and transforms helpless sinners into wholehearted lovers of Jesus and children of God. There is no greater thing for us to do. Gospel transformation, then, should be the aim of every believer in three ways. It should be the aim of every believer personally. It should be the aim of every believer corporately. And the aim of every believer evangelistically. Just as the gospel continues in saving power each day. So also does it work its transformative power inside every believer each day. Lord willing as you faithfully follow Jesus. You will recognize that you are a little more like Jesus today than you were yesterday. And prayerfully will be a little bit more like him tomorrow than we are today. If you want to know if the gospel is really changing you, Christian, ask your spouse or your children or a trusted Christian friend, how do I look and act more like Jesus today than I did yesterday? Don't trust your growth in the gospel by your own perception of yourself. Don't trust your growth in the gospel by your own perception of yourself. Jeremiah 17.9, the Lord says, The heart of man is wicked and deceitful and desperately sick. Who can cure it? Our hearts are plagued by sin, even those of us who know and trust Jesus. Our hearts still wander towards sin and tell us things about ourselves that are not true. They allow us to think better of ourselves than we ought. So, Christian, if you want to know if you're growing in the gospel, ask a spouse, ask your children, ask a trusted friend in the church How do I look more like Jesus today than I did yesterday? As a church, corporately, together, as a body of believers, we should be asking How are we being changed by the gospel to love one another more genuinely? Jesus said, the world will know you are my disciples by the love you have one for another. How is the gospel changing this body? How is it causing us to love Jesus and in loving Jesus, loving one another more, seeking his will above our own? How are we being compelled by our love of Jesus to take the gospel to the lost? The gospel should be changing us. It should be the the aim of the church evangelistically. We should be expecting the gospel, the good news of Jesus, the fact that Christ lives in us as we trust in him to be changing our hearts for those around us who don't know Jesus. Knowing what we know about what God says is true about who we are in our sin and who who he has made us to be. There's there is no greater thing to want for anyone else in this world than for them to know Jesus the way we know Jesus is the gospel in your life changing you to see the lost people around you those that don't know Christ and to see them not through eyes of judgment but with eyes of love and compassion with broken-heartedness for those who don't yet know him is the gospel changing you evangelistically ask yourself as you think of those in your life who do not know Jesus ask yourself this question honestly do i really care if they give their lives to Jesus or not do i really care do i really really care Church family of First Baptist West Albuquerque, know this. If you vote this morning to call me a senior pastor of this church, you should expect me personally to give evidence of being changed by the gospel. And you should also expect for me to push and to pull and to stretch and to challenge each and every one of you, us together as a family of faith. To be changed by the gospel. To be transformed by it regularly. And expect for us to develop a laser-like focus as a church on sharing the powerful and life-changing gospel of Jesus. To a lost and dying world as a matter of first importance. You want to know what I'm going to do in my first year. You want to know what I'm going to major on. You want to know the direction I'm going to lead this church. To be a gospel outpost in a lost and dying world. That happens to be planted in Taylor Ranch but is seeking to reach every lost person we know with the good news that Jesus died for their sins, rose from the dead, and that by trusting in him, they can have new life now and eternal life forever in the presence of the God who has made them and saved them and loves them for his glory and for our good. I wasn't planning on saying this, but I'll be incredibly candid with you this morning. If you don't want to make disciples and you don't want to reach the lost and you don't want to be equipped and led and challenged to do so, do not vote for me as your senior pastor this morning. Because that's the direction I'm taking us. And not because I think it's a good thing to do. Not because I think it's, a, it's the, the hottest new church growth fad. But because it's what God through Jesus in Matthew 28 has commanded us to do. Therefore, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Those are our marching orders. Church, under my leadership, we're going to march. We're going to follow our king. We're going to do so lovingly. We're going to extend a gracious hand and a gracious heart to a world that needs Jesus. And we're going to glorify God as he changes lives and we're going to we're going to revel in the excitement of seeing God do things in us as we give ourselves wholly to being changed by the gospel personally personally corporately and evangelistically Amen. we pray for us